BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a new CNN documentary revisits a kidnapping in California that upended a Central Valley town and gripped the nation. In 1976, 26 school children from Chowchilla were taken from their school bus and held captive underground. The children and their bus driver would escape, but for decades, they'd bear not only the scars of the harrowing ordeal, but also the lack of understanding of how to treat their trauma. This hour, we meet one of the survivors of the kidnapping and the director of the film called Chowchilla. Do you remember it? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And listeners, a note that our show today may be especially disturbing to children. Jennifer Brown Hyde was just nine years old in 1976 when her school bus was hijacked by three men. They would take her and her classmates 100 miles from their Central Valley home to a rock quarry near Livermore and bury them alive. Jennifer and her classmates, who ranged in age from 5 to 14, would all escape the ordeal, but not its traumatic decades-long impact, as a new CNN film re-examining the crime documents. It's called Chowchilla, and later we'll meet the film's director, Paul Solette. Joining me now is Jennifer Brown-Hyde, who survived the kidnapping. And, And Jennifer, thank you for being here and for telling us your story. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me today. So Chowchilla, it's about 40 miles north of Fresno. How would you describe it, the the Chowchilla you knew before the kidnapping? Um, Just a small town USA. (laughs) We we didn't lock our doors. Um, We could walk around town. Um, Everybody knew everybody. And it sounds like you're a very outgoing kid. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Um, I used to get in trouble quite a bit when I was younger in school and on the school bus for talking a lot. Yeah, you would be, I think you use the word mouthy. (laughs) Yeah. But then on July 15th, you were on your usual bus ride home from from summer school when your bus driver, Ed Ray, came upon a, a white van that was blocking the road. Tell us what happened next. So I was sitting in the very back of the bus and I didn't initially see what was blocking the road. I just knew that Edward was veering off the 
regular road to try to go around something. So I just assumed there might be a car stuck in the road, broke down. And it wasn't until a masked man jumped on the bus with pantyhose over his face and a gun and made Edward get up out of his driver's seat and actually come to the back of the bus and sit across from me in the aisle. Um, did I really realize that there was really something wrong? Where did they take the bus? So after um, that first individual got on the bus, then a second individual got on the bus and sat in the seat behind the driver's seat and pointed a gun down the aisle at us. Hmm. And so the first gentleman that got on got in the driver's seat and drove us down the road. And we had absolutely no idea where we were going. And they went off the road into an old riverbed, which was called a slough bed, which was where the farmers got their irrigation water. And down in that dry riverbed was another van. There was a green van. They made you get in this van, right? They actually separated the kids on the bus into these two two vans. You were with your brother on that bus. Were you with him in the van too? Actually, no, I was not. My brother was sitting about halfway on the bus. And so when they backed the first van to the door of the bus, my brother went with the first group of students and they drove away. And then they backed the second van to the door of the bus. And I, along with Ed Ray, who was sitting across the aisle from me, our bus driver, went into the second group. So I was separated from him at that point. And you have to understand there were lots of pairs of siblings or one family had four children that were kidnapped. So there were a lot of us that were separated from family members during that part of the ordeal. And on that van for an incredibly long time, 11 hours, as I understand it, in just dark and windowless heat, what was going through your mind? Um, well, when we first got into the vans, we had absolutely no idea how long we were going to be in there. And you are correct. No food, no water, no air, um, in a hundred and some degree weather in central California. Um, and I started yelling at the, the kidnappers told them they didn't know who they were messing with. When my dad got a hold of them, all hell was going to break loose and they needed to just pull over the van And they needed to let us go. And so, yeah, I was mouthy for a good few minutes before Edward told me to just please be quiet. But panic had set in at that point. um, And I didn't really know what was going on. So my normal instinct was just to fight. And so, I don't know, after an hour, we kind of settled down we started singing some songs. We kind of dozed off because of the heat, because this was in the afternoon going into the evening hours, and it was still very hot. No food, no water, no bathrooms. We were peeing on ourselves. Kids were throwing up. I mean, it was inhumane. Yeah. And then when the van actually stops, you're you're actually grabbed, asked for your name, a piece of clothing, Um told to climb down a ladder into a dark hole. That must have just been incredibly terrifying. Actually, for me, what was terrifying was as they opened the door and grabbed one child and pulled them out and closed the door, we didn't know what they were doing. 
to the child that they pulled out. We didn't know if they were shooting them with a silencer. I mean, that's what went through my mind. And so as they pulled one child out, I scooted and scooted and scooted to the back of the van because I thought if they recognize my voice, they're going to know that I was the mouthy little girl that yelled at them for a good 30 minutes. And so as they took child upon child and took Edward, I was the very last one to exit our van. And as I got out, they had really bright lights, like construction lights, or like you would have on a movie set. And so it was actually blinding, didn't know where we were, what they were doing. And I had on a pink bikini. And so I was very self-conscious. So I grabbed a shirt as I was exiting the van and just kind of covered myself with it. So they assumed that that was my clothing and asked me my name, my age, and they took my shirt from me, which wasn't even my shirt. But there I was standing in a pink bikini. We're talking with Jennifer Brownhide, who survived being kidnapped at gunpoint and buried alive in 1976 when she was just nine years old. Her story and that of her classmates and bus driver has been retold in a CNN documentary that is streaming now on Max. It's called Chowchilla. And actually, I'd like to play a clip from that documentary. This is another child, another kidnapping victim, Larry Park, who was six years old at the time, describing being grabbed and taken out of that van. They escorted me to where there was a hole in the ground with a ladder coming out. I looked down the ladder and I could see Ed Ray, the kidnappers, gave him one flashlight. I did not want to go down there. I knew if I went down that hole, I was never coming back out. Time froze. Hmm. Listeners, do you remember the Chowchilla kidnapping? What impact did it have on you? Or perhaps you're just learning about it. What questions do you have? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or by calling 866-733-6786. So Jennifer, you, your classmates, your bus driver, Ed Ray, you are all buried down there for hours and hours. How did, how did you cope? Um, For me, it was somewhat a relief to go in that hole because that was the first time I had got to see my brother Hmm. and the other kids. And so I knew that we were all together again and the next part of the nightmare continued. Um, That was the first time that we had food, water and a makeshift toilet um, so that we could urinate. And it seemed like time just for me stood still. I remember dozing off. I remember eating a snack and it was pitch dark, but they were trying to conserve the flashlight. I can remember sticking my hand out in front of my face and I literally could not see my hands. Um, I could touch and reach other kids because we were all kind of crammed in there. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm alive and I don't know what's going to happen next. And that was the actual first time in my life that I ever remember praying And I said my prayers and I told God, if he got me out of there, I would not argue with my brother. I would do my chores without being asked. And I would go to church because I wasn't raised going to church. I said, I will go to church and I will do what I think I need to do to be a good kid. And then I just kind of dozed off. Yeah. 
um, you found out later that you were in, in some kind of like trailer, right, that had been buried underground? Yeah, they had taken a short moving trailer, not a 53-foot moving van, like a regular semi-trailer. It was about half that length and buried it in the ground. We had absolutely no idea at the time, knowing that where we were, there was um, like wire on the sides of it. And we could tell that there were wheel wells because that's where they cut the toilets in. So we knew it was some sort of a vehicle or trailer but never comprehended that somebody had actually buried a moving van in the ground intentionally and took hours, if not months, days to do this. At that time, the word kidnapping never crossed my mind. And I ultimately, after many hours, literally thought I was going to die. I would never see my mom and dad again. I was never going to get out of there. And I think ultimately that was why I said my prayers because I was trying to make amends for what I had done wrong in my short little life. And I, at that point, thought I was going to die and never get out of there. In 1976, in the Central Valley town of Tachilla, 26 children and their school bus driver were kidnapped by three men and held captive. The whole ordeal lasted about 28 hours until they managed to escape. We'll learn more about that escape and speak with the director, Paul Solette, after the break. The film is called Chowchilla, and listeners, you can see it if you're streaming or able to stream on Max. It takes a fresh look at it, not just the ordeal itself, but its role in informing how we address childhood trauma today. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're remembering the harrowing kidnapping in Chowchilla, California, being retold nearly 50 years later by CNN Films and streaming on Max. Did you know, listeners, that this happened in California in 1976? Maybe you remember when it happened. Maybe you were a child and you remember your parents or teachers talking about it. What did they say? Or if you were a parent then, do you remember talking to your kids about the kidnapping, how you handled it? 
If you're just learning about it, what questions is it raising for you? Jennifer Brown Hyde is with us, a kidnapping survivor who was nine years old when the events in the film took place. And I want to bring into the conversation now Paul Solette, director of the documentary called Chowchilla. Paul, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. So, Paul, you say one of the things that you noticed about this story of the kidnapping was a scarcity of detail. This is despite its horrific nature, despite the fact that it inspired wall-to-wall media coverage when it happened. So what did you feel was missing? I mean, I think, you know, I was I I was first sort of drawn to the story by the same things anyone anyone would initially be be drawn to. There's sort of this, this spectacular um bizarre and incredibly callous uh kidnapping, but sort of the closer you look, um, you know, the more you sort of start to see that the reporting over the years is is um, there. There really is a paucity of detail, you know, when it gets to uh, uh, the escape that took place and and what happened underground, and and then uh, you know, really what happened to the children over the years. You know, the the story just sort of the narrative sort of just ended um, after they came home, and it just sort of seemed like any, everything was okay. There was some coverage over the years, um, but it wasn't. It didn't provide the sort of detail that um, that I found myself um, craving. And, and I think as I started to reach out to, to to the survivors and get to know them, I, I really, I just was incredibly inspired. And and um, mm. and uh, you know, by everything they went through that day, and, and everything that they continue to go through, um, you know, to this day. What do you attribute that scarcity of detail to? I mean, I think it's a whole series of factors. I, I, I think, um, and I think there's nothing really conclusive. I think that we have an appetite for, a, uh, you know, a, a hero's journey and a tight narrative with a single protagonist and, you know, a clear antagonist and a beginning and a middle and an end. And, and trauma is not, um, trauma doesn't have a, a, a clean wrap up like that. And, and we didn't, we had some understanding of trauma then, but we didn't. We it was a much less sophisticated understanding of trauma. You know, I'm just a filmmaker. You know, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not a specialist in trauma. But I think, you know, uh, I've learned enough to understand. You know, that there really was a lack of sophistication in the understanding of of what an event like this would do to a child. And I think, um, you know, the appetite for for a clean narrative just is sort of working at cross purposes mm. with the reality of of a traumatic ordeal like this. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, how how did you eventually get out? Can you tell the story of your escape? Yeah, it's it was a long escape ordeal as far as we waited. And they said they would come back for us. Nobody came back for us. The roof started to cave in. Um, dust and dirt were flying everywhere. And a pole that was holding the ceiling up was crumbling. And so it was a fight or flight. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that we were not going to survive much longer. So Mike Marshall um, decided that he was going to try to get out of the hole that we came in. He was one of the oldest kids, right? He was 14. He was. He was the oldest um, male survivor for as far as children. Um, He decided to try to escape with the help of a few other individuals as far as students and Ed Ray, he was able to, after many hours of backbreaking work in excruciating heat, um, was able to escape 
get us out through the hole that we came in by moving a steel plate, moving two semi-batteries, kicking in a wooden box, and then there was sunlight and we were free. So these heavy batteries were what was holding down, you know, the, the, the way out, that hole that you had all entered into. It was covering it with a manhole and then these batteries. And I have a cut here of Mike Marshall describing what was going through his mind um, that made him determined to try to get out from underground. Let's listen. You know, a little fear kind of hits you, but at the same time, it generates more power. I was trying to process it all, and I thought to myself, we're going to die, we're going to die getting the hell out of here. You know, we're going to die, try. Again, a clip from the documentary, Chowchilla, and listeners are writing in. Robert writes, I was also nine in 1976. I remember reading about this harrowing story in Reader's Digest a year or two after it occurred, and it fascinated and terrified me. Growing up in Michigan in the 70s was the era of kidnapping for my generation, and everyone I know was scarred by the, quote, Oakland County killer events going on locally in Detroit. Paul, it was really important for you to honor Mike Marshall's role in the escape in your documentary. Why? I mean, I think one of the one of the shortcomings in the sort of narrative that became the kind of calcified official story um, was Mike's role. It was sort of a footnote. Mike, you know, Mike was rarely mentioned by name. You know, there was a sort of a small detail, kind of a passing detail, you know, you know, the way that the story was told was that um, the bus driver, with the help of one of the older children, um, uh, you know, was able to get everyone to freedom and everything was fine. Um, and, uh, you know, the more I, I, I got to understand what happened down there and, and the more I got to know Mike and, uh, you know, the more I realized just what an incredible role he played and and you know this is a 14 year old boy you know this is a this is you know one of the most courageous things i've ever heard of and there was just it just was never told and i think you know mike um mike marshall suffered just along with the rest of the kids the same trauma from from having been through this the ordeal of the kidnapping itself but Mike had a, a, an additional complexity um, that he had to bear because there was a sort of a secondary trauma um, by having been sort of omitted from this narrative. And, and if you know Mike, as Jennifer does very well, um, you know Mike is Mike. Mike really is the man that you see in that movie. He is incredibly modest. Um, he's a cowboy, and he was raised, um, you know, with a, a very, uh, you know with real ethics and morals and you know he wasn't he wasn't going to um he wasn't going to brag uh he was not you know he's not remotely boastful person um and he also didn't want to say anything that was going to disrespect ed ray um and uh Mm -hmm. i think it's been it's been it's been so long and i think you know mike has had such a journey i think bringing that sort of journey full circle um, really, has been sort of one of the great privileges of 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 doing this project for me, and and uh, he's just an incredible guy. I mean, Jennifer can speak to him to, to him as well. 
Did you want to add anything about Mike, Jennifer? Yeah, I was very fortunate that our families were very close after the kidnapping and our moms and us kids, my brother and Mike's sister, spent many hours, many evenings, many weekends riding horses together and just relaxing. So exactly what Paul said is exactly what Mike was. Very shy, very quiet, very hardworking, very respectful. Um, And luckily for me, as my teenage years went on, I always admired and respected him, not just as a family friend, but as a hero, somebody that literally helped save my life. Mm -hmm. And to this day, that is still how I feel. Um, and, And the role that he had was that he was a hero and still is in my eyes. We're talking with Jennifer Brown Hyde, who survived a kidnapping at nine years old in Chowchilla when her school bus was taken hostage, essentially, and she and 25 of her classmates were buried underground along with their bus driver, Ed Ray. Paul Solette is director of Chowchilla. His previous films include Clean, Bullethead, and the documentary Tread. You can see Chowchilla on Max. Listeners, you are calling with your reflections and questions. Let me go now to Jim and Martinez. Jim, you're on. Yeah, thank you very much. In 1975, I was a itinerant teacher in a special ed um, classroom in Walnut Creek, and one of the students I worked with was named Jody, and I had not remembered his last name. I knew it was a boy, obviously. Um, and then your producer came on and said uh, the last name, and I said, yeah, that's definitely the person. Mm. I knew he had moved to Chowchilla um, sometime before the event, and somehow I knew that he had been uh, on that bus i never got a sense of closure as to what happened to him uh this is a really interesting fascinating program so i wonder if your your uh, folks there would have any idea what what became of jody yeah paul or jennifer do either of you know jody spoken to jody for the film jody Matheny, i think is is the last name if i'm pronouncing it correctly I don't know, Jody. No, I don't. Mm. Yeah. I think, Jennifer, you were saying, you know, kids processed it in so many different ways. Some still don't even talk about it to this day, right? That's correct. And um, I remember Jody um, very fondly. And um, he did have um, a lot of issues during the kidnapping, after the kidnapping. And I don't remember him even sticking around in town. Um, it's possible that he moved away because there are many families from the ordeal that just packed up and left, thought if we just go and don't talk about it, we will all be okay. And so I have had no contact with Jody in many years. Um, He's not one of the individuals that I have stayed in contact with because I don't remember him still staying in town after it happened. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth writes, I remember the news stories about it, but I also remember the frequency of child kidnappings at the time, like the Patty Hearst kidnapping. As kids, we were always wary of vans and strangers. One thing that was jarring was that Chachilla was a school bus, always a completely safe place to be before that. You know, Paul, you were talking about how Mike Marshall didn't have a chance to fully share what happened to him. And I think that gives some insight into how little we understood about how to help the children who'd endured something so traumatic. Um, There seemed to be this prevailing belief or a sense of that in your documentary that people felt the best way to move past what happened was to not talk about it, was to do 
fun things that didn't bring that up for the kids. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, there are a couple anecdotes that speak to that in the film. One of them is, uh, you know, that following the kidnapping, um, the Lions Club uh, in in Los Angeles, I think, arranged for the kids to go to Disneyland. And, you know, I think Jennifer, you know, can, is good, you know, to point out is really a very lovely gesture. Um, and I think came from a very pure place, but it also is indicative of that sort of lack of sophistication, understanding about how this stuff worked. You know, when you go through something like this as a child, you you can't just replace, uh, you know, an ordeal like this with uh, with Mickey and Minnie, as Jennifer says in the film. Um, and uh, and I think one of the other things, you know, that I think is really sort of striking uh, to hear about is um, that the parents were, were counseled um, to ignore the their children's nightmares, you know, that, that if they didn't, um, you know, pay a great deal of attention to it, that it would sort of go away and, and, and dissipate. And, you know, again, this, this didn't come from a place of maliciousness. It came from a place of, um, you know, just uh, ignorance, you know, we just yeah. didn't know. We just did not know. And of course, all these years later, you know, you know, in no small degree, um, because of the the sacrifice that the Chachilla kids made on the bus that day, we we have a more sophisticated understanding of what what something like this does to kids, and we have a, you know, and we have a better understanding of of how important integration of an event like this is, um, which is exactly the opposite of what they were given at the time, unfortunately. And Jennifer, I I would love to know more about how it affected you. Initially, though, you do talk about how your parents encourage you to talk about it. You were willing to share your story with reporters. Do you think that helped? Oh, I do in the biggest way. Um, fortunately for myself and my brother, my parents encouraged us to talk about it. The morning that we got home, my mom had a tape recorder as my brother and I were telling my parents what happened. And we were talking about it. We helped the FBI with composite drawings while the kidnappers were still gone. Um, we gave numerous uh, interviews to law enforcement to try to remember details. Um, and our family talked to the press from day one. And I feel that because of my parents allowing us to do that and allowing us to express our feelings that it helped me um in one way there's no way that my parents could have shut me up to begin with so i think that they knew that it would be helpful for us but also my parents instilled in us that the world stood still for that time that we were missing and that my parents and my brother and i felt that we owed it to society to let them know how we were doing um, and how things were because mm. we would get letters sent to our house that would just have our name and just say Chachilla. Mm. Um, and the world wanted to know how we were doing. They were curious. There wasn't social media at the time. So reporters showed up to our house all the time. I don't remember any time that my parents turned them away. Um, reporters showed up to my brother's funeral and they were just told to please stay outside the cemetery and don't come approach us at our house. So we had friendships with a lot of local reporters. And so during the anniversaries of the kidnappings, they would come and we would welcome an interview with them because my parents felt it was important for our um, healing process 
um, to yeah. do that. And I still continue that today. And I was so sorry to learn that your brother that your brother died in an accident five years after the kidnapping. Yes, you were able to talk about it, and you appreciate that so much. But of course, this left such a deep impact on you. What are some of the effects it had on you over the years that, that you'd like to share? Well, as a young child, I thought the kidnapping was probably the worst thing that I could ever have gone through until five years later the worst thing I could ever have gone through was losing my sibling. Um, he had been through the kidnapping with me. We were like two peas in a pod. He was a year ahead of me in school. I looked up to him, would go to him for advice about how to approach mom and dad about things that I wanted to do and how to handle teachers, how to handle kids. And so my life after losing my brother was 10 times worse than it ever was after the kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And I honestly felt anger. I was upset with God because I thought I did everything you asked me to do after the kidnapping. I went to church. I didn't argue with my parents. And how could you take somebody so special to me? I was very resentful. I went through a very dark time. I was a very rebellious teenager. I went to live in a foster home. My parents got divorced and my whole world just crumbled. And so at a very young age, I had had so much child trauma that for a long time, I didn't know how to deal with it. And after losing my brother, the kidnapping seemed like nothing. It was just something that happened. But I had so much more to deal with, with the new life and new reality after losing my brother that the kidnapping was just on the back burner. Lisa writes, I vividly remember the Chachilla kidnapping. I was eight years old at the time, and it absolutely terrified me. Every night I would go to sleep and think I was going to wake up buried. Noelle writes, what was the motivation of the kidnappers? This is bizarre. We'll talk about that after the break. We're remembering the 1976 Chachilla kidnapping of 26 children and their school bus driver by three men. They were held captive underground. They managed to escape, and one of the survivors, Jennifer Brown-Hyde, is with us today, and Paul Solette, director of Chachella, is also with us, as are you listeners. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a school bus kidnapping in California Central Valley nearly 50 years ago that's being re-examined in a new documentary, not just the crime itself, but also of untreated childhood trauma and the toll uh, that it took on the children, how it was underestimated and unaddressed 
at the time. Jennifer Brownhide was one of the children on that school bus and is here telling us her story. Paul Solette is the director of the documentary called Chachilla by CNN Films and streaming now on Max. You, our listeners, are sharing if you remember the kidnapping, what impact it had on you, the questions that you have or, or what you'd like to tell or ask Jennifer or Paul. Maybe you have a reaction to the lack of support that children received after they escaped. The email address forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum on X or Instagram or on our digital community Discord. Our number 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Mary in Livermore, you're on. Hi, Mary. Hi, everyone. Uh, Jennifer, I just want to applaud you for surviving and getting through this. Um, I'm all, I was also nine years old in 1976. My mother worked for Madera County Sheriff's Department. A few weeks ago, I was helping her go through some memories, and we came across a copy of the teletype that she saved and received on J- um, July 16th, 1976. Forgive me, my voice gets shaky because I get very emotional about this. But it reads, confirmed your children and driver, all safe and well, all at the Santa Rita substation near Pleasanton, press blackout area. Condoned off suspects are to be returned at 2,400 hours. I um, remember my mother being on 24-hour duty for all the time that the children were lost, and what a relief it was to all of us um, when they were found. And It was so meaningful to her. She's tracked the case all these years Mm. and has always been uh, angry that the court might consider releasing any of the um, of the kidnappers as well. Mm. Well, What a piece of history, Mary. And thank you. This listener writes, I grew up in the Santa Clara Valley, and I remember that the kidnappers were upper middle class men from the area. They wanted to get ransom money for the kidnapped kids so they could buy something. They were highly unsympathetic criminals. What can you tell us, Paul, about the kidnappers, their motive? I think one of the one of the really shocking things, uh, you know, that was discovered was that these were not, you know, the people that you that that everyone expected to find, uh, you know, were responsible for this thing. They were they were people of means from from a very nice area of the Portola Valley, um, and uh, and one of them. Uh, uh, Fred Woods was uh, of uh, really vast means. His family, um, you know, uh, they were they had they 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 were very very old railroad money, and a lot of it, you know, I think their family had something like 140,000 acres of rancho property up and down. Yeah, his name was Fred Newhall Woods, and anybody right. who's been around California has seen Newhall. Uh, That's right. The name. That's right. Yeah, Newhall and and Saugus are are both namesakes of 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 his family, and so had Fred Woods waited, uh, he would have inherited a great deal of money. Um, but I think there were some, there was uh, had a very very unusual, complicated relationship with money in his family, and and I think with his father, and and um, and he wanted. Uh, presumably independence. There are a whole lot of things that were said by the kidnappers about uh, about their motives. Um, there's even a sort of uh, they were scrawling on toilet paper and passing it uh, between their cells um, as they were kind of coming up with kind of coming up with a 
their own kind of narrative about how to address this. They were talking about they were going to write a book, and um, they were sort of passing notes about what to say. And, you know, in there is sort of stuff mm. like, you know, we, we were going to, we wanted this money to, you know, for projects about, you know, fire suppression and this kind of stuff. And um, I think ultimately, you know, uh, in the case at least of Fred Woods, I think it really is, um, I think he, he wanted, uh, you know, he had a very different, he was a very different sort of a style of guy than his father's father was a successful executive and um you know uh and he was more of a sort of uh he liked to work on cars you know and and um you know he his aspiration was to have a scrap yard and you know to uh to buy and 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 uh refurbish uh, an old mansion and you know he had a, a lot of sort of uh hustles and i think he wanted to sort of prove <laughs> that he could be independent and uh, you know yeah jennifer what how do you feel that they are out on parole they were released on parole well as a young child i hope that that day would never come but as an adult and being able to understand the social justice system and that i i knew that ultimately the youngest kidnapper would be the first one paroled because i felt and i testified that he was the least actively participating in the whole ordeal so i knew that once he was released it would be not too long after that till the rest would come um i wrote letters for all the parole hearings um recently i appeared by zoom at the few that we could um after covid we were allowed to appear by zoom um, and so I did what I felt I needed to do to express my opinions about it. And ultimately, I had to let that go because the anger and the resentment that I felt was putting me in a really dark place. And so I had to just come to terms with the fact that they would be released and I'm not fearful of them. I don't fear that they're going to track me down and kidnap me again. Um, I just kind of have come to terms with it after all these years because I can't look at the negative of the whole ordeal or it would bring me down. And mm. I choose to look more at what could possibly be a positive from the whole situation. Hmm. Well, Larry writes, I remember it well. I was 12 at the time. We were all asking our parents lots of questions and were scared to go on a bus. I ended up working right next to the quarry where the kids and driver were buried. We would go near the area and reflect on how frightened they must have been. Jennifer, you, you've talked about just how hard it was in your teenage years. You've also described yourself as a helicopter mom for a while. Do you attribute that to the kidnapping? Yeah, actually, I called myself a helicopter mom. My oldest son, who was in the military, called me a Blackhawk mom because he said that is 10 times the better helicopter than just a helicopter. So my kids did not know about the kidnapping until they were in elementary school because my children had to ride a school bus to school. Um, and we had lived in California when they were young. And so my kids had cell phones from the time they were probably in first grade and third grade and knew that if there was a delay in the bus that they were to call and let me know and that that was the only time that they were to use the cell phones. So um, 
there was a time when my son decided he was not going to get off at the babysitter's house and was going to go down the road to where grandma lived and get off the bus. And so that was a terrifying phone call from the babysitter asking me, why didn't Cody get off the bus that day? So I didn't tell them about it at that time because he still had to ride a school bus. It wasn't until later, a few years later, that they wanted to go to a school carnival. And I told them that they could only go if I went with them. And so my son proceeded to tell me what a terrible parent I was and that I didn't trust him and that he was responsible and just went on and on exactly like I would do when I was a child. And so I finally had to tell them um, the book that sits in my cabinet in the house that has a school bus on it was written about mommy. And um, I gave them a short recap of what have happened. And my son got this deer in the headlight look and said, oh my God, that's why you're so crazy. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that mildly describes your mom. <laughs> so they cut me a little bit of slack and it wasn't until my son that was in the military had gone to Afghanistan and fought in the war and came back home and was dealing with his own PTSD that I sat and listened to him describe how he could finally understand why I was the way I was. He finally could understand as an adult, why did I sleep with a nightlight? And why was I such a control freak? Because I had learned over the years that as a child, when you have your freedom taken away, as an adult, I overcompensate and I am very organized, very meticulous. I have schedules, I have lists. I need to be in control. And that was put off on my kids. Mm. And they had to learn to live with mom's crazy. They had to learn to live with the nightlights and the inability to let them have a carefree childhood because I knew that there are evil people out there and I never wanted them to go through the living hell that I went through as a child and that my parents went through as parents. Yeah. Edie writes that Chowchilla kidnapping changed my and my family's lives. I was nine years old in 1976, living in a small Northern California town, not unlike Chowchilla. Before Chowchilla, we were raised as free range kids. We really had, we rarely had supervision and were all but forced out of the house to run the neighborhood as we pleased. Chowchilla terrified my parents. And after that, and for many years afterwards, we were rarely let out of their sight. We were driven to school, driven to friends' homes and walked to the door. I frequently drive through Chowchilla these days and whenever I see the city limits sign, I think of the children, wonder how they were, sent, and sent thoughts their way, hoping they were doing okay. Jennifer and her schoolmates were never forgotten by me or my family. We're talking about the Chowchilla kidnapping of 1976 in a new documentary called Chowchilla, streaming on Max by CNN Films, directed by my guest Paul Solette. Jennifer Brown Hyde, a survivor of that kidnapping, is also with us, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You know, we, we hear about the impact of that moment and the broad ripple effect uh, that it had across the state and even across the country. But as you alluded to, Paul, I, I, I feel like we also owe them gratitude, right, for revealing to us, though unwittingly, the impacts of childhood trauma. Can you just talk a little bit about the changes their experience um, have brought in terms of lessons and, and 
just informing how we address traumatic events like this today? You know, again, I'm I'm not an expert um, in trauma, you know, but I can tell you that if you just sort of look at the history and you look at the way things are handled now and uh, the way that there, you know, the very pioneering research um, uh, of Lenore Terre, uh, you know, who, who had a chance to speak with the children afterwards, um, affected things. You know, we we that was sort of was a really pivotal, um, a really a really pivotal uh, evolution in in our understanding of childhood trauma. And I think the unfortunate part of it is that it, you know it it came from a sacrifice. You know, it came from a sacrifice that these kids made. Um, you know, they did not sign up for this. You know, they just got on the bus. Um, but I think because of them, um, you know, we 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 had a really um, uh, rapid acceleration in our understanding of how these things affected kids. Um, mm-hmm. And that's you know that's something that we we continue to understand. You know, we they as they continue to live and continue to go through and process and try to integrate this stuff in in all the various ways you see. Um, everyone in this in this film do we we continue to learn more and more you know having Jennifer here today to talk about her experience and her life now um, it just you know it's it's it really is a it's a really you know I think for me this, this the story is, is really unique in that it, it, it is about in some ways the fragility of the of the human spirit but also at the same time it's resilience you know every one of these uh, every one of the participants as you see in this movie they 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 really fought to to find um, to find themselves and and the 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 piece of their childhood that they kind of left um, you know down in the trailer that day and and whether it was through through God or through family or through service to their community they fought for it and they continue to fight for it you know to this day and I think there's hope in 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 that yeah what did you find did it for you Jennifer or or motivated you to fight or helped you fight through what you were going through, the compounded trauma, I mean, that the documentary shows us from so many mistakes, essentially, that the adults made after after you were freed, after you freed yourselves. Um, I can say that it took a village. I mean, my parents were phenomenal in their support to my brother and I um, over the years. Um, and still to this day, my parents are divorced, but they both live within a few miles of me and are my support team. Um, I have friends from elementary school that I am still friends with, one that lives in the same town and which is why I live where I live. I moved here because of her and her support. So it has taken a village. I mean, there have been therapists, there have been pastors, there have been coworkers, there have been people that have helped me through all the phases of my life that helped me get to where I am, not to mention my husband of 27 years who has had to deal with some crazy growing up from the time that we met at 25 until we're now into our 50s. (laughs) And it's not been an easy road. It has taken a village. It has taken um, the support of my fellow survivors that can understand exactly the hell that I'm going through when just normal day-to-day things take me back to that kidnapping and the pain and the trauma. Um, So it has been, and just like the caller Mary, when she called in saying her mom and 
it just fascinates me where people were and the things that they remember. It touches my heart. And that is why I do what I do. That is why I speak about where I am at today so that people like that can know that the time and the hours and the energy and the love and the support that they had for us and still have for us all these years is why I do what I do. It's emotional for me to talk. It's emotional for me to discuss this. But I still feel all these years later that there are people that want to know how I'm doing and want to know how my family is. And I feel that obligation to share that with people and also to let them know a message of hope. I have been through hell and back numerous times, but there is a part of me that is resilient. And I tell my kids to this day, there is nothing that I cannot do. There is nothing that God will not get me through. There is nothing that my mind and my mindset cannot get me through. So throw it at me however you want. I will take it. I will make it something good and I will get through it. And that's a message that I share when I share my testimony in churches, when I talk to women's groups, when I talk to Paul about the movie, I wanted to make sure that there was a message of hope. And I have read other survivors' books of other incidents and and trauma that people have been through over the years, and I find it fascinating. And I like to see how they survived because I know how I did it, and I did not do it alone. It has taken a village for many years. Well, I can't thank you enough for being willing to talk about it so openly, for recounting it with us today, and for letting our listeners who've long wondered about those 26 children know you're okay. (laughs) Jennifer Brownhide, thank you. Paul Solette, thank you to you as well for retelling this story for us. I appreciate having you on. My thanks also to Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. This Hour Farm is also produced by Caroline Smith and uh, Susie Britton is our lead producer. Marnette Federis and Jennifer Eng are our engagement producers. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Catherine Monahan, Christopher Beale, and Jim Bennett. Our intern is Emiko Oda. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.